This will be our last study for uh, our prophecy series here, and so um, I hope that uh, I hope that you've enjoyed our look at Bible prophecies. You learned some things, and that um, <clears throat> you are better aware of what's going on and what will soon come upon the the earth, and we can be prepared and in accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the ultimate thing about this, is to show us our condition and the condition of the earth and how short time really is. And so, um, can I get a show of hands here? How many would like Jesus to be? There's a, very good, very good. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Well, this is our, our last study uh, at this time. We will be again meeting next Sabbath. Uh, we will talk about uh, when this conflict is over we'll, and the new earth. We'll talk about that new world that God will create and uh, we'll have communion together uh, by God's grace. But uh, right now we want to get into our last study. We're going to be studying the third angel's message. If you recall, we've studied in the last couple meetings, we've studied the first angel's message, the second angel's message. Now we're going to study the third angel's message. And before we get into our study, let's uh, always, and it's always good, to ask the Lord to bless us with, the, with His Holy Spirit. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you again so much for this opportunity to come together and study your Holy Word. We thank you so very, very much that you've uh, preserved your Word, that you have given us prophecy and, and given us a head start in essence uh, of, by showing us the things that are soon to come to pass so that we can be prepared, that we can allow you into our hearts and prepare us for these things. And so, Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us now. Uh, lead us into the truth as found in your word. Help us to have understanding when we study the third angel's message. And Lord, please cultivate within our hearts a love for the truth. Forgive us our sins, please. We claim the blood of Jesus who died for us. And Father, hold us in your hand through this time that is soon upon us so that we may be found faithful and worthy to enter into the city and eat of the tree of life. We humbly ask in the name of Jesus who is worthy. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, Revelation 14 uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Revelation 14 describes three angels bringing messages of warning to the world. And we previously learned, among other things, that the first angel's message declared that the judgment hour has begun. And we found that to be October 22nd, 1844. Uh, the second angel's message accompanied the first angel's message and declared that those Protestant churches at that time who rejected the judgment hour message as given by the first angel had become, quote, Babylon fallen. The message of the third angel sums up these warnings and concerns the beast, his image, and his mark. And we're going to see just what that warning entails. And uh, when we close up at the end of this message, we'll, we'll go through what we've learned from all three messages in case you... I know some have missed the, the first uh, uh, message, the first angel's message and, and such. Uh, we'll go through and summarize them up, what we've learned. 
But let's get into our study here this, this afternoon. Uh, question number one, what is the most solemn message to be found in the Bible? Now, the Bible has quite a lot of good messages, doesn't it? But what is the most solemn message that pertains to us who live in the end times? What is this most solemn message to be found that is found in the Bible? Let's go to Revelation 14 and let's read verses 9 to 12. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, The question was, what is the most solemn message to be found in the Bible? And what we read here was the third angel's message. And we find that, friend, this talks about the beast, his image, receiving his mark. Those who receive his mark are are going to receive the wrath of God. And that would be the most solemn message to be found in all the Bible, friends. It's a, a very very startling warning and praise God that he gives us these warnings that gives us time uh, to be prepared let me share this with you this is just a little note from the book entitled gospel workers page 291 gospel workers page 291 the third angel is represented as flying in the midst of heaven showing that the message is to go forth throughout the length and breadth of the earth. It is the most solemn message ever given to mortals. It is, and it's the last message of warning um, before Jesus returns. We'll find that out in just a few moments. In fact, that leads us into question number two. Is this the last warning message before Christ comes? And Christ comes for, before Christ comes a second time. Let's go back to Revelation 14. And this time let's look at verses 14 and 15. So we read the third angel's message, which was verses 9 to 12. Now we'll skip down to verse 14. It says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so is this the last warning message before Christ comes? We read here in these verses here, and it's talking about, in these verses, um, it's talking about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, to reap the earth. And so the answer is yes. And, And so the nature of the three angels' messages and the fact that immediately following them, the coming of Christ is discussed show that the three messages of God, uh, are God's final messages of warning to the world. Um, and so, yes, this is the last warning message before Christ comes. 
Question number three. To whom is this worldwide message of warning addressed? And does it exclude anybody? Well, if we go back to Revelation 14 and look at verse 9 again, it says, And the third angel followed them. That's following the first and second uh, angel's message. It means it accompanies the first and the second angel's messages. It says, The third angel followed them, saying, With a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, etc. So we see here that this, this message is, again, is given with a loud voice. And so... Uh, to answer the question, I mean, all the world will hear this message. So no one is excluded. Unless, you know, they're asleep in the grave, <laughs> you could say. But, but anyone living on, on, in the world will hear this message. No one is excluded. Because the loud voice indicates that the message will be proclaimed so that all may hear the message, see. And it also emphasizes the importance of the message, it will grab everyone's attention. And they'll, have to, they'll have to make a choice, you see. Uh, this quote I'd like to share, it's from the, the book, The Story of Redemption, page 383. It says, The most fearful threatening ever addressed to mortals is contained in the third angel's message. That must be a terrible sin which calls down the wrath of God and mingled with mercy. Men are not to be left in darkness concerning this important matter. The warning against this sin is to be given to the world before the visitation of God's judgments that all may know why they are to be inflicted and have opportunity to escape them. So it is God's last message of warning, you see. And and because it is the last message of warning before Jesus is to return, all the world will, will need to be addressed and they will be, and everyone will have an opportunity to hear it. It doesn't exclude anyone. Decisions will need to be made. Question number four. Who is the beast that the angel is speaking of? Who is this beast? Remember, we read it. Let's go back to Revelation 14.9. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The same shall, etc., receive the wrath of God. What beast is being spoken of here? Well, in our previous studies, we looked at Revelation chapter 13. We looked at that first beast, and we looked at that second beast and who they represent. And and the third angel, essentially, is warning the world against worshiping That seven-headed beast of Revelation 13, that first beast, the one you read about in Revelation 13, the first 10 verses, we found to be Papal Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. The second beast, the two-horned beast, the United States, we discovered, represents the United States. It solicits, solicits the worship of men for the first beast. And it should be noted that this warning will have ultimate force only after the healing of the deadly wound that was inflicted to the seven-headed beast. You read about that in Revelation 13, verse 3. And also, the formation of the image to the beast that you read about in verse 14. When the mark of the beast becomes an issue, that's, that's when this all uh, comes to the, to the front. But as preached today, friends, 
when we read about this and we're studying about the third angel's message, we still have time because the third angel's message is a warning concerning issues to come. Hasn't quite happened yet. We see things. We see the signs of the times around us. We know time is short. Isn't that true? And, and, and we see these things and we, we talked about it earlier this morning. We, we, we look at these things and this isn't the same world that we, even us, us young people, <laughs> uh, you know, this isn't the same world we grew up in. Things have dramatically changed. And it's like the Bible says, uh, uh, things that are black are being called white and things that are white are being called black. Evil is being, being called good and good is being called evil. And uh, that's the time that we're living in, the end times. And so this third angel's message, this warning about worshiping the beast and his image and the wrath of God coming and, and those things, this is concerning issues that are to come. It's a warning that will uh, enlighten men as to the issues involved in de- this developing struggle you see. And it enables us to make an intelligent choice. Are we going to choose to follow God or are we going to choose to worship or follow the beast? And so this mark of the beast is yet future, although it's not too far away. It's not in some distant future. Uh, We need to be preparing now, friends. Now is the day of salvation, Paul tells us. Question number five. What is the image to the beast as mentioned by the angel? Let's go back to Revelation 14, 9 again. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, Man, man, worship the beast and his image and receive his mark you know in his forehead or in his hand so what is this image well let's we need to skip back to revelation 13 again and go to that second beast because that's where we find talking about the setup of, of an image when we go to verse 12 it says and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast that would be Roman catholic church um So he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders so that that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. What is an image? What is an image? Well, an image is something, well, you, you know, today, very common, you look in a mirror and you see your image reflected back to you. So what an image is. It's not necessarily the real thing, but it's an image of the real thing. Okay? So what is this image? The answer, an organization will be created that reflects the character traits that you find in the first beast. It's an image to the beast. The word image that's used here is uh, the Greek word ikone. It's Strong's number 1504, if you want to look it up. And, And it means an image, a figure, likeness, a likeness. So what's being said here is that the two-horned beast of Revelation 13, which we, we know now represents the United States, is going to make a likeness 
to the seven-headed beast of Revelation 13, which we know is papal Rome. An image then would be an organization functioning on much the same principles as papal Rome's organization. Among the principles by which papal Rome operates is the use of the secular arm to support religious institutions because it's a church and state entity. So this message says that in imitation, the United States will repudiate its principles of religious freedom as the church prevails upon the state to first enact, then enforce its dogmas. That's what's meant uh, there by when it says that the image of the beast should both speak and cause. That means they'll enact and then enforce the church's dogmas. And since these are religious laws, well, it's going to cut across the conscience of, uh, and convictions of many people, friends. Decisions will have to be made. Uh, are you going to obey God or men? There will be a decision to make, and you can't run from it. Everyone will have to make that decision. Let me share this with you uh, before we get into question number six. It's from the book, The Great Controversy, page 445. The book says, it says here, it says, the image to the beast represents that form of apostate Protestantism which will be developed when the Protestant churches shall seek the aid of the civil power for the enforcement of their dogmas. And so that's, that's what it is. The United States is going to create an organization, become, create an image, you see, like that of the first beast, which is papal Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. They're going to be, be a church-state, in essence, uh, a church-state entity where, where the church will use the state to enforce their dogmas. Question number six. How will the worship of the beast and his image be enforced? Let's go back to Revelation 13. This time let's read verses 16 and 17. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand, or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So how will the worship of the beast and his image be enforced? Well, all will be required, you see, to have a mark of loyalty to the beast in order to buy and sell. Now it's rather interesting, the Greek word here that's used for, that's translated mark, is karagma, which means an impress, a stamp. It's been translated as a mark. And so this is essentially, this is a badge of loyalty to papal Rome. It's a, a badge of loyalty to the beast, that first beast, which we know is papal Rome. You know, some special feature that denotes that the one displaying such a mark worships the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Um... The beast and his image are united in their aims and, and policies and in their demand that men receive a mark of loyalty to the beast. Hence, the one who worships the beast also worships, worships the image and is a bearer of their mark. So it doesn't matter, see, if you worship the image or the beast itself, you see, because they represent the same thing, the same thing. One's just the image of the other. But this hasn't come yet. This hasn't happened yet. The mark of the beast isn't, isn't in effect right now. You know, you have all these ideas people have out there. Where, well, the mark of the beast is a, 
a radio chip that's placed in your you know wrist or in the back of your neck or it's a barcode stamped across your forehead or it's you know will the devil use these things you know in the enforcement of this yeah possibly but is that really what the mark of the beast is well we're going to find out and we'll find out that that's not the case uh, but that hasn't happened yet let me share this with you from the book evangelism page 234 no one has yet received the mark of the beast the testing time has not yet come There are true Christians in every church not accepting the Roman Catholic communion. None are condemned until they have had the light and have seen the obligation here that's been presented, uh, that we're presenting here in the third angel's message. Question number seven. Where do those who worship the beast receive the mark? It's a logical question. Where are they going to receive it? If it's, you know, not a barcode, if it's not a radio chip, what well, where do they receive it? Let's look at Revelation 13, verse 16, again. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in the right hand or in their foreheads. So where do the, those who worship the beast receive the mark? Well, in their forehead or in their hand. Now, This mark being in the hand or in the forehead, it indicates that not only one's labor, which would be represented by the hand, but also one's belief, which is represented by the forehead, is is affected. The phrase also designates two classes, doesn't it? Those who submit to the decrees of the beast merely from expediency. They don't really believe it, but they're going to do it just because it saves their life, you know. And those who do so from personal conviction. Well, they actually believe that that's God's church and God's representative. Um, In order to determine specifically what the mark of the beast is, we must consider the characteristics of the beast. And who is this beast? Again, uh, we've discovered that this is papal Rome, right? Roman Catholic Church. So let's go to question number eight. What did this beast power, Papal Rome, think to change? Now, we've covered this in a number of our Bible studies together. But let's go back and look at it. Let's go back and look at Daniel 7 and verse 25. It's so important to understand this because it makes, helps to make sense of all of this prophecy, all these messages and these prophecies we've been looking at. What did this beast power, Papal Rome, think to change? Daniel 7, verse 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Now we've studied that out in great detail before, haven't we? But what did this beast power think to change? Daniel says right here, God's times and laws. But friends, the special characteristic of papal Rome, and therefore his image, is the breaking of God's commandments. They didn't change them. Daniel says, of the little horn, that's what Daniel 7 is speaking to, the little horn power, which is the same as the first beast in Revelation 13, that he shall think to change times and laws. And Paul described the same power as the man of sin. You look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says he's the man of sin who was to exalt himself above God. So we know one prophecy is a compliment of the other. But only by changing God's law could papal Rome exalt itself above God. 
whoever should understandingly keep the law as they've changed it would be giving supreme honor to that power by which the change was made, you see, in effect worshiping that power. Such an act of obedience to papal laws would be a mark of allegiance to the Pope in the place of God. Can you see that? The mark thus becomes the sign or seal of authority for papal Rome or for the beast and its image, which we know is uh, apostate Protestantism with the state, a church state. That's the image. So what do they think to change? God's times and laws. Question number nine. Which of God's ten commandments did papal Rome, the beast, think to change? Well, we've studied this before. Let's look at Exodus 20, verse 8. What what do we talk about here? This is the fourth commandment, isn't it? God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. What's that mean by hallowed it? It means he made it holy. That day is different than the other six in that God made it specifically. He made the seventh day holy. Holy, and he's saying to remember it. But what did Rome do? That beast power, they thought to change the Sabbath. The papacy has endeavored to change just not that commandment, but change divine times and law, more specifically, though, the fourth commandment, though they've also removed the second commandment dealing with the worship of idols that allows them to worship you know, Mary and the saints and such. And in order to make, bring it back up to Ten Commandments, they split the Tenth Commandment about covetousness into two. And that you know, keeps the Ten Commandments, right? And the apostate church, the Catholic church, they freely admit it's responsible for the introduction of Sunday worship. We covered this before. Claiming that it has the right to make such changes because it's God's church after all. That's what they say. The only Catholic church, that, I mean, they have no qualms in claiming that they changed the Sabbath day of the fourth commandment from the seventh day of the week to the first day. Let me share some of their own words with you. This is Father Enright. He says, the Bible says, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. The Catholic church says, no. By my divine power, I abolish. That's changing God's times and laws, isn't it? They said, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience, reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. That's what they say. Cardinal Gibbons, he says this, the Catholic Church, by virtue of her divine mission, changed the day from Saturday to Sunday. Who changed it? I mean, I've got, uh, I talk to uh, people and show them these things. They say, well, we worship it because that's the day Jesus was resurrected. They don't realize that, that the Catholic Church is the one who changed that. The Bible didn't change it. Um, Monsignor Louis Segur, um, he was a French Catholic prelate, an apologist. Um, 
He said this. He said the observance of Sunday by Protestants is an homage they pay in spite of themselves to the authority of the Catholic Church. They don't say the Bible. They say the Catholic Church. Our Sunday visitor, it was a Catholic weekly, it said this, but the Protestant mind does not seem to realize that in observing Sunday, they are accepting the authority of the spokesman for the church, the Pope. You see what I'm saying, friends? Uh, here's another one. The Catholic record. Sunday, and that, now this, this is really astonishing. They say Sunday is our mark of authority. Isn't that interesting? We're talking about uh, the third angel's message, and within that message there's this, this, uh, this message of, uh, of the mark of the beast, and here we know who is the beast. The beast is the Roman Catholic Church. And here they're coming out and they're saying Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Well, no, friends, that's not fact. They say it is. The office of Cardinal Gibbons says this, of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. You see here, friends? The Catholic Church is saying that Sunday is their mark. Okay? One more, Pope John Paul II in Dies Domini, his, his letter, Dies Domini, he said, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Why? Because the Catholic Church says that that day is holy. The Bible doesn't say it's holy. The Catholic Church does. But he's saying that all Christians will naturally strive to make laws, civil legislation, to enact laws that will, that will respect their duty to keep Sunday holy. He's talking about a Sunday law. A mark, sign, or seal of authority, friends, is used with the same meaning in the Bible in connection with laws or legal documents. And if you look in history, history tells us that seals were used in the Near East much like signatures are used today. Thus, they attested the, the authorship of a document. You know, it wasn't forged uh, indicated the ownership of the, the object upon which the seal was impressed or secured objects such as chests, boxes, tombs. You know, the tomb, when they, they uh, put Jesus in the tomb, Rome sealed the tomb. They put a seal on that tomb of Jesus so that they would know if somebody broke that seal and, and was trying to do something, you know, to legitimize the words of Jesus, see? Um, they used wax a lot. They, they, the king had a ring, you see, and it had his seal in that ring. And when he would send an official document, he would seal that document with wax, pour wax, and put his ring into it, and it would be sealed, see. And it would show, you know, it, it was a... Uh, um, it showed that the, it hadn't been opened by somebody or molested by somebody and, and such, see. It was official, and, and so it's been recognized by nations for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that an official seal 
Um, well, an official seal must show three things. First, it showed the name of the lawgiver. It showed the, their official position or right to rule. And the third thing it showed was the kingdom or territory over which they ruled. So, for example, let's look at the seal of authority for the United States. Okay? When the president does something in the name of the United States, he, there you'll find the name of the lawgiver, and that would be Abraham Lincoln. Let's just use him as an example. Abraham Lincoln, his official position or right to rule, well, he's president, and the king or territory over which he rules, the United States of America. You would find those three things uh, in an official you know, document representing the United States. Now notice that papal Rome, the beast, of these words we just read, the beast has chosen Sunday as their mark or official seal of authority and, the, and will endeavor to enforce this mark upon all people. <coughs> Excuse me. So their official seal today could look like this. It could look like this. The name of the lawgiver would be Francis. His official position or right to rule, well, he's the Pope or the Bishop of Rome, the Vicar of Christ, right? That's why he's Pope Francis, see? The Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and the kingdom or territory over which he rules, well, the Holy Catholic Church and Vatican City, because it's a church state, but he says he represents the whole earth. That's why he's called the Vicar of Christ. He rules the whole earth, see? Okay? So you see this seal, this mark is a seal. And the Catholics, by their own words, have come out and said Sunday is their mark of authority. That's a very powerful statement there, friends. Let's go to question 10. Their worship is in vain who do what, the Bible says. Well, Jesus said this. It's found in Matthew 15, verse 9. He said, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So their worship is in vain. Who do what? Those who keep men's commandments over God's commandments. And, and, and that's very, very important to understand. God wants us to worship him. And how do we show our uh, love to God? We obey him. See, we keep his commandments. But there are those who say that men's commandments are greater than God's commandments. Catholic Church says, for example, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. The Catholic Church says, no, we changed it. We changed it to Sunday. And we command you to keep Sunday. Well, one is the commandment of God. One's the commandment of man, right? And Jesus said, when you keep the commandments, uh, you teach for doctrines the commandments of men, you are worship, worshiping me in vain. Okay? And it's interesting to note that after the warning against the worship of the beast and his image, the prophecy declares in Revelation 14, 12, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. <clears throat> so, I mean, let's think about this. Since those who keep God's commandments are thus placed in contrast with those that worship the beast and his image and receive his mark... Well, it follows that the keeping of God's law on the one hand and its violation on the other will make the distinction between the worshipers of God and the worshipers of the beast. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Question number 11. What has the Lord done which reveals his authority as the true God? What's the Lord done that shows that the, uh, his authority is the true God? He's the true God. First Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 26. First Chronicles... First Chronicles 16 verse 26 says, For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. What did the Lord do? He made the heavens. That reveals his authority as the true God. He's the only one that could do it. He is the creator. See? How do we know he's the creator? He's the one who made the heavens. Question 12, what did God sanctify as the sign or mark of his authority as creator? Genesis 2 and verse 3, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That means he made it holy. Because that in it, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. See how it's tied together? He's the creator. What shows he created? He made a sign. He made his mark. It's the mark of his authority. And what is that mark? It's the day he sanctified and made holy. It's the seventh day. What did God sanctify as the sign or mark of his authority? Well, not only does papal Rome, that beast, have a mark or seal of authority, they'd said it's Sunday, but God has a mark or seal too. It's the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath. The seal is connected it's very interesting. It's, it's just incredible. The seal of God is connected with his law. And, and it's found in the fourth commandment. Remember we talked about that seal, those things that it would contain. Well, we find all those in the fourth commandment. Did you know that? It's remarkable. It really is. It's remarkable. Let's go back to Exodus 20 and verse 8. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the who? Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy. So it's very interesting. I mean, you read through all the Ten Commandments but it's only in the fourth commandment that you find his seal. You find these three things. Remember what those three things were? Remember that? The name of the lawgiver. Well, it says right there, the Lord thy God. You know, Jehovah, God Almighty, the Lord thy God. His official, official position or right to rule, that was the second thing in an official mark or seal, right? Well, he's the creator, it says. He made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is. And it needed the kingdom or territory over which he rules. It's right there. Heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. <laughs> See? It's really remarkable. It's, it's fantastic. Um, not only we find that, that you find the love, you find the character of God revealed in the fourth commandment, the, the Sabbath day, but you find it because his seal is there, because he's there, Abba, Father. It's an incredible study in and of itself. Let's go to question 13, though. We need to move along here. We've got like 20-some questions here to answer today. In fact, it's the longest Bible study in our whole series, so we need to, to move along here. 
Uh, question 13. What has God given us as a sign that he is the Lord that sanctifies us? Right? The Lord, that he is the Lord that makes us holy. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. It says, Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctifies them. So what has he given as the sign that he's the one who sanctifies us? His Sabbath. That's the sign. God created heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is in six literal days. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 1. On the seventh day, he rested. He didn't have to create a seventh day. We could have had a six-day week. We just worked all the time and never had a day of rest, a day to reflect, a day to worship God and be just with him. He could have done that, but he didn't. On the seventh day he rested and set the day apart as the day of rest for all mankind. The observance of the Sabbath is then a mark or a sign that whoever honors the day acknowledges Jehovah as his God. For only to him do these facts of creation apply. Right? God has specified a particular day. He's bidden us to keep it holy, free from worldly pursuits and personal pleasures. This obligation, friends, that we cannot with impunity escape. God gives us a command. It's expected to keep it. That we will keep it. There are dire consequences if we don't. There will not be any commandment breakers in heaven. All commandment breakers will be destroyed. We talked about that in our, our uh, 11 o'clock study. We talked about the unquenchable fire. Hellfire. Question number 14. What has he asked us to do as the sign of our allegiance to him or the mark of our allegiance to him? Let's go back to Ezekiel again, chapter 20, verse 20. And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. And what is the answer? What's he asked us to do? He's asked us to keep his Sabbath day holy. That's what the fourth commandment is, is all about, to keep it holy, because it's a day, it's the sign, a uh, uh, mark of our allegiance to him. So we keep it holy. It shows who his people are. The remnant church in the last days, friends, will uphold all ten commandments. We read about that in Revelation 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Question number 15. When man-made laws go contrary to the law of God, whom are we to obey? And friends, I'll tell you something. There are people who have a hard time answering this question. It's remarkable, actually. But I alluded to it uh, earlier. We go to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. This is something Peter Peter and some of the apostles said in response uh, to uh, the uh, uh, Sanhedrin, to some of the leaders of Israel. It says, Then Peter and the apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. So the answer is, I mean, if you've got a choice to need to obey the commandments of, of men, if those, those laws go contrary to 
something that God expects you to keep, one of His laws, you need to obey God. Because ultimately you answer to God, don't you? Let me read something from Acts of the Apostles. This book, Acts of the Apostles, page 68, explains it pretty well. It says, We are to recognize human government as an ordinance of divine appointment and teach obedience to it as a sacred duty within its legitimate sphere. But when its claims conflict with the claims of God, we must obey God rather than men. God's word must be recognized as above all human legislation. A thus saith the Lord is not to be set aside for a thus saith the church or a thus saith the state. The crown of Christ is to be lifted above the diadems of earthly potentates. So, you know, we are to recognize human government. We are to obey, you know, civil laws and such as far as they go in their sphere. But if they conflict with the commandment of God, then friends, um, we need to obey God. Question 16, other than their right hand, where else can one receive the mark of the beast? Let's go back to Revelation 13, verse 16. Let's read it again. Revelation 13 and verse 16. Excuse me. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Where was it now? Other than the right hand, where else can one receive the mark of the beast? It says right here, their forehead. The forehead is used as a figure to denote the intellect or mind, as the heart is used to denote the, the disposition or the affections. The, to mark or seal in the forehead is the same as to write, uh, see, in the mind, in someone's mind. Question 17. John saw an angel ascending from the east having what? Revelation chapter 7 verse 2 says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. So the answer is the seal of God. So here's this angel has the seal seal of God. The seal is the pure mark of truth, friends. It's the mark of God's approval. It it attests likeness to Christ in character. Uh, Again, the seal of God, the token or sign of his authority is found where? Remember where that seal was found? That's right, it's in the fourth commandment. Exactly. In the Sabbath. It's found in the Sabbath commandment. And those who keep the Sabbath uh, show that they are followers of the true creator God. And uh, if found faithful, God will seal them. See? Where will he seal them? Well, that's question 18. People of God are to be sealed where? Let's go to the next verse, Revelation 7, verse 3. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So they're sealed where? In their forehead. The concept uh, of God placing a mark upon his people goes back to Ezekiel's vision um, and, and if you haven't studied this before, uh, I invite you to go back. That's in Ezekiel chapter 9. But uh, it goes back to, to his vision of the man with the writer's inkhorn, who is commanded to set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in Jerusalem. 
Again, I invite you to study Ezekiel 9. Maybe sometime I'll be able to do a study with you all on Ezekiel chapter 9. Um, very remarkable, remarkable uh, study. Uh, by virtue of the mark, they were to be saved from destruction, you see. And the same is true for God's people at the time of this prophecy we're studying now, the third angel's message. We need to be sealed by God because we're either going to be sealed by God or we're going to be sealed by the devil, friends. Now, I would rather be sealed by God. How about you? Amen? Yeah. Question number 19. What is to be sealed among God's people? What is it that he seals? Is it that he pours wax on your forehead and puts a stamp on it? I mean, what is it? What does he do? Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 16 says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. What is the seal of God? It's the law of God. That's what's going to be sealed among God's people. They're going to be law keepers. Ten commandments. Let me read this one Bible commentary. Uh, Bible writer, commenter says this, says, uh, those who desire to have the seal of God in their foreheads must keep the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Thus they are distinguished from the disloyal who have accepted a man-made institution in place of the true Sabbath. Notice this. The observance of God's rest day is a mark of distinction between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. So friends, you know, when the time comes and it's the time of the mark of the beast, you got a decision to make. Are you going to observe God's rest day, His commandment, keep His commandment, or are you going to observe the beast's day, His mark? And that's going to be the line of distinction between those who serve God and those who serve Him not. And that's what this author saying. Question number 20. How will God seal His law among His disciples? Well, how's He going to do it? Again, is he going to pour the wax on their forehead and stamp them? Or, I mean, you know, what, what's he do? Let's look at Hebrews 10 and verse 16. Hebrews 10 and verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. So, According to scripture here, God's going to write his law into their hearts and into their minds. So it will become, have you ever heard of the expression second nature? Well, that's, you know, that's their second nature. They do it like out of habit. And that's essentially the way God's people will be. They will obey God and they'll reach a point to where they actually obey him uh, out of habit. They'll reach a point where they never sin again. Isn't that something? Is that something to look forward to? Yeah, to never sin again. So when tempted, they don't even—they won't even really be tempted because they love Jesus with all their heart and and all their mind and soul and their whole body. Question twenty-one: When God's laws are written in our minds, what will be our testimony? Psalms forty verse eight. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Well, we will love to obey his laws like, like we're talking about. They'll be written in our hearts and minds. We get to a point where we love to do God's law. We love to please him. And obedience to his laws pleases him. Question 22. 
Revelation 14 and verse 1 describes Christ's people as having what written in their foreheads? Let's look at Revelation 14 verse 1. It says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. You know, you break it down, you get into the Greek. This is better rendered, having his character and the character of his father described in their minds. So, Revelation 14, 1 says that Christ's people will have the name or the character of their heavenly father. That's what is being being said here in Revelation 14.1. You see, the law of God is actually, it's an expression of his very nature. It is an embodiment of that great principle of love and, and hence is the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. And when the principle of love is implanted in one's heart, when a person is renewed after the image of, uh, of him that created him, then the new covenant promise is fulfilled when he says, I will write my laws within their heart and in their mind. That's what it means. I'm going to, to put this enmity within them as we read about in Genesis 3.15. He says, I'm going to put an enmity in there in your heart and your mind for sin. You're going to hate sin and you're going to love me. You're going to love my law. You're going to love my character, and eventually you're going to develop my character uh, within you. So when people see you, they see love. They see Jesus, as the expression goes. Question number 23. What ultimately happens to those who obey the beast and receive his mark? I mean, are they going to live eternally? Are they going to go straight to hell and burn for eternity in hell? We studied that this morning, didn't we? Found that the Bible doesn't even teach that. Let's look at it. Third angel's message again. Revelation 14, verse 9, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture, that means there will be no mercy from God. Right now, some of God's judgments has some mercy mixed with it, but not at this time. It says, It is poured out without mixture in the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Let's look at Revelation 20 and verse 9. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. We looked at that this morning in better detail. If you look at verses 14 and 15 of Revelation 20, skip down. It says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's second death. In order to partake of the second death, you have to have a second life. So the wicked will be resurrected. They will be judged. Then they receive their punishment. They receive the second death in the lake of fire. And when that's all burned out, they become ashes, as Malachi says, under our feet. So the question was, what ultimately happens to those who, who obey the beast and receive his mark? Well, we read here they receive the wrath of God. 
Well, what is the unmixed wrath of God? <laughs> well, we begin Revelation 15 verse 1 says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. What, what is? The seven last plagues is filled up the, the wrath of God. Look at verse 7. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who liveth forever and ever. When we get into Revelation chapter 16, friends, we might as well just we'll go ahead and read it here. It describes these plagues. So I'll read through it. Um, I'll begin with uh, verse 1. I'll read through it quickly here. Mainly because... I don't want to just say the the seven last plagues. I want you to see the description of how terrible these plagues are. I mean, I could point to it and say, read this on your own, but but uh, we got other people listening to us here and maybe in the future, and I want them to hear it. Maybe they've never heard it before. Revelation 16, verse 1. I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Oh, wow. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds." And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And we, we studied this before. I shared a study about this before. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not, was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. 
And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. Friends, that, that, depending on whose definition you find, that's anywhere between 100 to 150, and some I've seen 200 pounds. You imagine hail falling on the earth at 100 to 200 pounds each. It's incredible. And then it said, And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So our question was, what is the unmixed wrath of God? Revelation 15, Revelation 16 gives us all the details of it. It's the seven last plagues. The seven last plagues. Let me read this to you from, again, the book Great Controversy, page 627. When Christ ceases his intercession in the sanctuary... The unmingled wrath threatened against those who worship the beast in his image and receive his mark will be poured out. The plagues upon Egypt, when God was about to deliver Israel, were similar in character to those more terrible and extensive judgments which are to fall upon the world just before the final deliverance of God's people. It makes one shudder, or it should, friends, doesn't it? Do you want to partake of those plagues, the wrath of God? I don't. Let's move on here. Question 25, are the righteous shielded from these plagues? Or do do all the inhabitants have to go through these plagues? Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10 says this, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. And there are many other places, friends, but yes, God will shield those who have been faithful, those who by faith have kept the commandments of God. They'll be sealed by God and they will be shielded from the plagues. Question 25, who will be able to claim the promise of protection? Well, I... Encourage you to read all of Psalm 91, for example. Uh, but let's just look at verses 9 and 10 of Psalm 91. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Who's going to be able to claim the promise of protection? Those who abide with the Creator. Those who make him thy habitation, see? I found this in a devotional book. It's called Conflict and Courage. I wanted to share as we study this. It says, He who walked with the Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace will be with his followers wherever they are. His abiding presence will comfort and sustain. In the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such as has not been since there was a nation, his chosen ones will stand unmoved. Satan, with all the hosts of evil, cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. Angels that excel in strength will protect them. And in their behalf, Jehovah will reveal himself as a God of gods, able to save to the uttermost those who have put their trust in him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? 
Let's go to question 27. Who will have no rest day or night? Remember we read that? Let's go back to Revelation 14. Look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. So the seven last plagues fall upon and torture the worshipers of the beast and his image until they die. Right? That first death. And in addition, these same followers of the beast rise in the second resurrection and receive their eternal punishment, that second death in the lake of fire. And we studied that earlier today. No rest, says there. No rest means that for the duration of the punishments, which continues until death ensues, there will be no relaxation of the punishment. In other words, you're not going to get a a five-minute break to catch your breath. The time of day matters not. You see, the torment is continuous until it ends. The figure of the smoke ascending forever is, uh, well, doubtless it's drawn from Isaiah 34.10 where the desolation of Edom is described. Isaiah's statement, the smoke thereof shall go up forever meant until it was completely burned up. And we know this because the fire is not still burning to this day, is it? No. And because the country became a desolate wasteland inhabited by wild beasts, you read, you go on down to verse 15. So the description denotes complete destruction. The mark of his name, it says, is the same as the mark or sign of his authority, Sunday. And anyone who accepts this mark will receive the plagues, friends. Now, we're not in the mark of the beast yet. It's not being enforced by law. But when it does, it becomes the mark of the beast. Here's a, from an uh, article out of the Signs of the Times, March 22nd, 1910. It says, the Sabbath question is to be the issue in the great final conflict in which all the world whacked apart. Men have honored Satan's principles above the principles that rule in the heavens. They have accepted the spurious Sabbath, which Satan has exalted as the sign of his authority. But God has set his seal upon his royal requirement. Each Sabbath institution, both true and false, bears the name of its author, an effaceable mark that shows the authority of each. The great decision now to be made by everyone is whether he will receive the mark of the beast in his image or the seal of the living and true God. And that's what it is, friends. That's what it comes down to. Question 28. In the end, there will be only two parties. Who are they? Who are the two parties? Well, you go to Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall He shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Look at verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So we see Jesus here, he's saying the righteous are looked at as sheep 
and they're on the right hand. And those who are unrighteous, the wicked, are as goats and put on the left hand. And, and, the, and the everlasting fire, the hell fire we studied earlier today, is prepared for the devil and his angels, which is represented by the goats. And of course, in Revelation 14, verse 12, it says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Or it's rendered better as steadfast endurance of the holy ones. That's a better rendering. Um, Through the conflict with the beast in his image, the faithful saints steadfastly endure and maintain their integrity, you see, to God and his commandments, even though they're threatened with death. And there does come a death decree to put them to death. And so, who are these two parties? Well, the Bible says it's the righteous and it's the unrighteous. Question 29. Well, what is the faith of Jesus? What is the faith of Jesus? We're getting into what the real gospel is, aren't we? That first angel's message, the true and everlasting gospel. We covered what the faith of Jesus is. John 12, verse 44. Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me, Believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And when he says believeth, that word is, it probably should better be rendered as commit themselves. So you who commit yourself to me, you don't believe on me, but you believe on him who sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. means God has a religious liberty. You can believe what you want to believe, but you'll pay consequences for what you believe one way or the other. God doesn't coerce, see? So he says, if any man hear my words and believe, believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. What is the faith of Jesus? Let's look at Romans 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. What is the faith of Jesus? Well, friends, trusting the Father completely for help to overcome sin. When you do that, you are... um, you are living out the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus and the keeping of the commandments represent two important aspects of Christian living. The commandments of God are, and we've learned this before, they're a transcript of the character of God. They set forth a divine standard of righteousness that, that God would have man attain, but which is, uh, you know, when you're unconverted... You can't attain it. You know, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, Paul said in Romans 8, 7. But Jesus came to enable us, enable men and women to be restored to the divine image. And through his power, we are enabled to keep the divine requirements, keep God's law, and reflect 
the divine image or reflect the character of God. That's what the faith of Jesus is about. You, you live out the faith of Jesus. You exercise that same faith that Jesus exercised in overcoming temptation. Question 30. Who will stand on the sea of glass there in heaven? Let's look at Revelation 15 verse 2. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Who stands on the sea of glass? The saints who defeat the beast. Question 31. How were they able to overcome? Revelation 12 verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What is the word of their testimony? That is their life. Their testimony. Their experience in overcoming sin and being victorious. And it says, and they love not their lives unto the death. How are they able to overcome? By having the character of Jesus manifest in their life. That's how they were able to overcome. Question 32. What right is given to those who have faithfully kept the commandments of God? Revelation 22 and verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. What right are they they're given? They're given a right to eat from the tree of life. What does that mean? That means they'll live for eternity. They become immortal. And they have a right to enter in through the gates into the, the city of New Jerusalem. It's remarkable to me that, see, God would give you the right to do that. Because, you see, when He created us, He created us as free moral beings. And He's given us that right to choose and he's, he's a kingdom of laws. And if you are obedient, you, you, you're not under the condemnation of the law, see? You're free to do that. You have a right to do these things in God's government. You have a right to eat from the tree of life and to live forever. Praise God. Praise God. That's the third angel's message, friends. And I appreciate you hanging out. This has been kind of a long study, hasn't it? But before we end, I want to go through the summary of the three angels' messages very quickly. I mean, I know we've gone over an hour, and those who know me, they like to make fun of me. They know that, <laughs> that uh, you know, that's not uncommon for me, but I go as the Spirit leads. And so uh, let's look at this real quickly. A summary of the three angels' messages. The first angel, we found seven things primarily. First, it's not a literal angel, but a worldwide message. Second, this message consists of the perpetual good news of salvation, that through Christ's merits we can reflect the image of God perfectly in our life here and for eternity. Um, the third thing, this message tells us the time of the Messiah's first advent. It gets us really into the studies, uh, more studies into Daniel, and Daniel chapter 9, etc. Uh, number four, that his true church, the body of Christ, will be giving this message to every nation, tongue, and people. Uh, fifth thing that the first angel, uh, we found out about the first angel's message is that this message calls people to glorify God in body and in spirit. So to follow God's health laws is an integral part of this message. The sixth thing we learned, this message proclaims that there is a judgment that all must face 
on an individual basis before God. Seventh thing is that this message tells us that the time of the judgment has opened, bringing to an end the longest time prophecy in the Bible, that of Daniel 8, verse 14, and any further prophecies based upon definite time. We found that, not just from the first angel, but from some of our uh, other studies that we've done here in this series, that on October 22nd, 1844, the great court from which there is no appeal convened in the most holy place of the sanctuary that's in heaven. That's what we learn, you know, the summary of what we learned from the first angel's message. Now let's look at the second angel's message. We've got seven things here. First, the second message accompanies the first one. It's not a complete separate, like the first angel's message comes to an end, then the second one begins. No, it accompanies the first angel. See? The second thing we learned was the second message was not originally given with a loud voice like the first and third messages are, but will be repeated with a mighty voice in the future. The third thing, Babylon uh, spoken of is not the literal city of Babylon built by Nimrod or the one ruled by Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in in, uh, Daniel. The literal city of Babylon no longer exists and will never be rebuilt. The fourth thing, Babylon is symbolic of a harlot from Rome a mother who has harlot daughters. The fifth thing we learn, we've discovered what harlot means and such. Papal Rome is the mother harlot and apostate Protestant churches are her harlot daughters. The sixth thing that we learned was that Papal Rome fell centuries before the time of the second angel's message. So the message, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, describes the rejection of the first angel's message by apostate Protestant churches. Because Rome had fallen long before that, friends. Thus, you had Protestant churches, see? And the seventh thing we learned in the second angel's message was that papal Rome and her daughters, the apostate Protestant churches, will work together with the state, the United States, to enforce their religious decrees. And then today we studied about the third angel's message, and, and we found that first the beast is the seven-headed beast of chapter 13, or papal Rome. That's the beast that's being spoken of. The second thing was that the image is apostate Protestantism in partnership with the state in order to enforce their religious dogmas, which would be the United States of America. So apostate Protestantism and the United States uh, come together in a church-state relationship. The third thing we learned was the mark of authority for the beast or for papal Rome and his image, apostate Protestantism, is Sunday worship. This mark is future. It's not yet enforced yet, but when it becomes law and enforced, it becomes the mark of the beast. The fourth thing, receiving the beast mark shows allegiance to papal Rome and its image over God, which seals one to receive the plagues. The fifth thing that we learned in today's study, the mark of God's authority is the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. The sixth thing that we learned, receiving God's mark seals one for eternal life and protects one from the plagues. And the seventh thing, a seventh thing that we learned, the remnant saints of God keep all ten commandments and reflect the character of Jesus perfectly in their life. So they overcome the beast, its image, Mark and the number of his name, and therefore have a right to eat of the tree of life. 
And so I went through, you know, got into the original languages, uh, the original Greek language, and, and I looked at the third angel's message. And, and I think it could be rendered a little bit better. And here's, here's the third angel's message rendered, I think, more accurately. Let's see if this helps. It's a little bit longer than what you read in, in the King James Version, but notice. And the third message accompanied the first two, proclaiming with a great noise, he who prostrates himself in homage to the papacy and apostate Protestantism and keeps the sign of their authority Sunday as enforced by the state by conviction, that's belief, or compulsion, force. The same shall partake of the plagues of God, which is mixed without mercy due to his righteous anger. And he shall suffer the second death in view of heavenly beings and Jesus. And the result of their punishment lasts for ages and ages, and there is no relaxation during the punishment for those who prostrate themselves in homage to the papacy and a prostate, apostate Protestantism by keeping the sign of their authority Sunday. Here is the steadfast endurance of the holy ones. Here are the elect of God that protect, harbor, and guard his law and have the character of Jesus perfectly reflected in their own. And friends, I think that is it in a nutshell. I think that nails it. Before we close up here, I want to read what this writer writer has uh, put in an article from a review in Herald, July 13, 1897. It says the third angel's message has been sent forth to the world, warning men against the receiving of the mark of the beast or of his image in their foreheads or in their hands. To receive this mark means to come to the same decision as the beast has done and to advocate the same ideas in direct opposition to the word of God. If the light of truth has been presented to you, revealing the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, and showing that there is no foundation in the word of God for Sunday observance, and yet you still cling to the false Sabbath, refusing to keep holy the Sabbath, which God calls my holy day, you receive the mark of the beast. When does this take place? When you obey the decree that commands you to cease from labor on Sunday and worship God, while you know that there is not a word in the Bible showing Sunday to be other than a common working day, you consent to receive the mark of the beast and refuse the seal of God. My friends, the choice is yours. Will you follow Jesus or will you follow the beast? Will you keep God's true Sabbath or will you, you keep the false Sunday as your day of worship? Will you be sealed by God or receive the mark of the beast and thus receive it the plague? Friends, I, I say choose wisely. For if you choose wisely, you will live for eternity with Jesus and all the redeemed. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do again thank you so much for this opportunity to study your holy word. We thank you for being with us for these last many weeks as we've studied through some very, you know, can be controversial uh, <clears throat> principles and and uh, prophecies and that you've led us through step by step and we put the puzzle pieces together and and it all fits like a glove and we praise you for that we thank you for the gift of the holy spirit that has led us through these things and we look forward to a time where sin will be destroyed forever and the devil will be gone there will be no tempter that we can live with peace of heart in a perfect body and in a perfect world 
We thank you so much for the opportunity to to gain that right to eat of the tree of life and enter into the city. We pray that you will hold us in your hand as you've promised. Father, we are weak. We are very weak. And we pray that you forgive us for our sins and help us, Lord, please, to be overcomers. We wish to be uh, alive and go with Jesus when he comes to take his people home. Please continue to be with us and keep us safe as we walk this pathway. And help us to share this truth with others, for time is short. We thank you for hearing this prayer, for we ask it in the blessed name of Jesus, who is so worthy. Amen.